say to you, Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, what a glorious day it is to be gathered in the house to worship. It is so good to be together on this Resurrection Sunday. Um, and as a reminder, I want to share with you as a, a believer in Jesus Christ, as a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, it is good news and good purpose that we are gathered today. And truly, it's the reason why we were even able to gather Every Sunday, we gather in light of the resurrection. We gather because of the resurrection. We gather because the cross is not the end of the story. We gather because sin is not the end of our story. Death is not the end of our story. There is a glorious hope that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So every Sunday we gather. We gather to celebrate the power and the purpose of the resurrection. And I got to tell you, it is so Good to see you all. So good to, to be here with you. Good to see uh, some faces that we see every Sunday. Thankful for that. Some faces I haven't seen in a while, and I'm so happy to see you. Uh, forgive me. Um, I, my, my, uh, my OCD nature is kind of kicking in. There's some of you I'm seeing right now, and I didn't realize you were here, and I kind of want to hug you right now. But anyway, you see me and I see you. We'll catch up later. You know who you are. So um, all that to say, let's just go ahead and jump into our message today. And before we do, I'm going to let you know we're in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 today is where we're going to be. And as you turn there uh, in the Bible, I want to ask you this very simple question for you to, to think upon it and, and ponder for a moment, if you will. And that is this, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, I think for many of us, this would be uh, simple enough for all of us to answer today. I think if you're a believer in Jesus Christ in this room, you would probably say that the, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus' life, his teaching, the crucifixion, and, and the power of the resurrection, just to simply put the gospel itself. I'm sure many of us in this room would probably give a more detailed answer if, if time allowed, and we would probably follow the pattern of God, man, Christ, and then response. But I want to ask you this question this morning. Have you ever asked someone else that same question? Because recently I had that opportunity. Over the past couple of weeks, I've had the, the opportunity to ask people who some know me, uh, some did not know me as well, some just met me for the first time. So it's kind of an awkward exchange, but still a fun exchange. And so I asked some folks, what is the gospel? And then here are some of the answers I was given, and I want to share them with you. One person told me this, that the gospel is your truth. When someone speaks truth, it's called the gospel. I had someone who claimed to be a Christian say to me that the gospel is your testimony. And I was like, well, that's kind of there, but not quite. Your testimony is a part of the story, but it's not the gospel. I even asked a pastor this question, and this is how he answered. A pastor said to me, the gospel is Jesus Christ, to which I could agree. I was like, yes and amen. And then he said this. He said, Jesus is like Joshua from the Bible to us. He's like our modern day Joshua. And he proceeded to tell me about how Jesus literally was just the second coming of Joshua. And I thought about that for a moment and I was like, um, no. Jesus is not like Joshua. In fact, Jesus was before Joshua. John 1.1 tells us as much. Jesus was actually there and ordained and orchestrated the steps of Joshua. So no, 
Jesus was not like, nor is our Joshua. Joshua was simply being faithful and obedient to God. He was simply being faithful and obedient to, to what we were going to see Jesus Christ do later. So, so no, you're kind, of, you're kind of missing the boat here when it comes to the gospel. You see, here's a truth that we need to understand today. We live in a day and a time where being a biblical Christian is no longer acceptable. Thus, we have in our own nation people who never come to faith, or rather they come to faith, but what they come to really is a watered-down version of Christianity that does not believe nor even attempt to read the Bible in its entirety. Thus, it leads to our lack of understanding of the gospel. Well, when you look at our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is actually where Paul finds himself when he's writing to the church at Corinth. You see, in the midst of calling the people to, to holiness in Corinth, Paul reminds the people that the gospel is and should be of first importance when it comes to the believer in Jesus Christ. So this morning, let's, let's join Paul in his writing and see when it comes to our own faith, when it comes to living out our own faith, when it comes to, to reading the word and understanding the word, we now see, according to Paul, that we should live, speak, and believe that the gospel is above all. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd encourage you to join me in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. And once you have found your place in the word, if you can and you're able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. Now this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, if I could, just to give you a little bit of background and to hopefully then get into this message where I hope and pray you begin to see just the encouragement and the affirmation that comes from the gospel. Uh, let me just give you a, a couple of opening thoughts, if you will, which, by the way, um, if you haven't been with us at any point in time, you know that when it comes to texts that deal specifically with the gospel, I tend to get a little excited. 
Okay? So, if I start talking fast, if I start getting loud, bear with me. I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling with you. Um, I really believe that when you look at this text in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, this is meant to be encouragement and motivation uh, to hopefully fuel the fire of the believers to get out and declare and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so when I read this text, that's, that's where I go with it. So if I, if I get a little wound up, work with me today, okay? So be, be with me, stay engaged, all right? Anyway, setting the scene for you. This is the Corinthians that we're talking about today. Now, this was a church that was under heavy persecution, both from outside of the church, but also they were experiencing some of their own persecution and their own division within the church. Now, upon reading this particular book, which, spoiler alert, um, after we get past Easter, we're going to have a, a one-off, which, by the way, next Sunday, let me go ahead and promote next Sunday, Forrest Brown is preaching for us next Sunday. And so you need to be here for that, okay? Um, this Man, this brother can bring the word. I'm looking forward to that. Be here next Sunday, okay? All right, there we go. Forrest, it's on you, dude. You got it. I believe in you, okay? Here we go. Coming back to the Corinthians, dealing with division. Now, upon reading this book, after we get past the next two weeks, spoiler alert, we're going to spend uh, a good bit of time walking through 1 Corinthians together. So that's where we're about to be in terms of our study together. Now, coming back to 1 Corinthians 15, quickly we see that Paul was really finding himself answering a lot of questions from the church at Corinth uh, that had been presented to him. Now, we don't know specifically what those questions were, but based upon Paul's writing and his ability to jump from one topic to another, rather succinctly, I might add, we see that there were many issues plaguing the church both within the church and also some of the external issues that they were now dealing with from outside the church. Now, throughout Paul's writing, we see that Paul constantly calls the people back to personal holiness on how to now live as a Christian. In other words, in each section written to the church at Corinth, you could literally see the phrase, not in the text, but you could almost feel Paul saying it, and he says this, we have a standard. You see, for Paul, Paul believed that as followers of Jesus Christ, as a church, we have a standard. There is a call to holiness as those who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are now set apart as a holy nation. Thus, there is now a standard for the believer. Now, in our particular text, Paul is about to start addressing the issue of a lack of belief in the power of the resurrection. But before he gets into the later half of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he reminds the church at Corinth yet again about the gospel, or better yet, the good news of Jesus Christ. So not only does, does Paul remind them of the gospel, but he's going to take it one step further and say, not only is this good news about Jesus, but you can rest assured in knowing that what you have been taught about Jesus and the story of the resurrection is true. It is very much real. Thus, when it comes to our own lives as believers today, we need to see that, that we are where we are because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are who we are because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do what we do. We're able to worship the way we worship because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as Paul teaches, it is the gospel above all. Look with me again in verses 1 and 2 
of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now notice how Paul opens and, and literally closes his entire letter to the first Corinthians with the topic of the resurrection. Now here we are in 1 Corinthians 15 at the end of the letter, but if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 5, you see Paul sharing the same story of the goodness of the gospel, thus revealing a special emphasis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, thus being central to the believer in God. So as Paul writes, he speaks of the gospel that I preach to you which really should take the reader at the time at the church in Corinth back to the promise of the return from exile back in the Old Testament. You see, this particular return is then linked to the fulfillment of God's promises, which leads to the promise of a new creation, which is seen throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 40, all the way through Isaiah chapter 66. Now, like those same promises of the return from exile, the promise of the new land, the promise of the new creation, and the promise of the one who is to come. Paul now sees the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel itself, as the fulfillment of God's promise to his people for all eternity. So notice for Paul, when speaking of the gospel, this wasn't just a return to a promised land. This was a, a, a return to the kingdom that we will now inherit for all of eternity because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of what we have done or what we have earned to get there, but because of Jesus Christ. So because of the fulfillment of God's covenant promise, as prophesied in Isaiah, Paul now calls the church to stand. He says to the church, stand in the gospel, because of the gospel, because of the, the good news of Jesus Christ, we who were once dead to sin can now stand in the gospel. Meaning this, as believers in Jesus Christ, in speaking to the church in Corinth, and speaking to us today, because of our faith in Christ, because of the gospel and what it has done in our life, we can now stand in faith. We can stand in hope. We can stand in forgiveness. We can stand in grace. This is what lead, would lead Paul in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 2 to say these words, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So let me say to you this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you here today and, and you're just downtrodden for whatever reason? You're broken hearted for whatever reason. You've, you feel like the past couple of weeks have beaten you down, whether it's been just, just work or, or life or family. You just feel like nothing can go right. You feel like everywhere you turn, everything seems to be going wrong. And all of a sudden you begin to look around and go, man, I don't even know where my faith is in this moment. I don't, even, I, don't know, I don't know where Jesus is in this moment. If that's you today, then can I ask you a question just for a moment? And that is this, is the gospel truly at work in your life? 
Because if the gospel is in you, then Paul says you can stand. Paul says this, he says, listen, stand and rejoice. Stand and rejoice in the hope that you now have because of the glory of God. You see, the gospel allows us to stand. The gospel allows us to cling to the hope that we now have in Christ forever. And it's the gospel that allows us to withstand whatever may come our way. Now, does this mean we should be happy in every moment? Because some people want to interpret this passage and say, well, that must mean for believers, we should just be happy for Jesus about everything. Your car has been totaled, be happy. Your house is burned down, be happy. You're, you're dealing with a, with a spouse that you'd like to just shake and get some sense into them. Like my wife often does with me. No, no, just be happy. That's not at all what Paul's talking about here. Rather, what Paul is saying is this. We have a foundational truth, a capital T truth, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can always come back to. Now, notice in the text, we we have this phrase where, where Paul then says, and by which you are being saved. Now, notice how Paul tells the church that we are saved by the gospel. It is the gospel that enables us to be rescued from the the wrath of God, which will be poured out on the world at the day of judgment. But then notice this about the text. The phrase says that you are being saved. Now, normally, we would read this, and, and for our own lives today, we think of salvation in past tense. Meaning this, that as Christians today, we have been saved, which is true. But for Paul, notice how he uses it in more of a a present tense here. Why? Because salvation for Paul is a present reality. Salvation for Paul is a a future hope for him and for the church. I mean, think about this for us today. Though we have been saved, though we can look back to the cross, we can look back to the power and the wonder of the resurrection, our salvation will not be complete. Our salvation will not be whole. Our salvation will not be finished until the day that we pass through judgment into the kingdom of God. Now, some people may hear this and say, wait a minute, does that mean I still need to work out my salvation? Well, yes and no. It's this beautiful process called sanctification. You see, in the fact that we have been saved and we are being saved, this really should be a praise moment, uh, a praiseworthy moment for us as believers in Jesus Christ today. You see, Paul is literally teaching the church that you are saved. And in light of your salvation through Jesus Christ, it's now through your uh, salvation that you are now growing in sanctification. Thus, salvation with you and in you now is still working in you and will not be complete until the day Christ Jesus calls us home. And on that day, we will experience the full power of salvation on display. This is why Jesus can say, it is finished. Because of the saving power he has offered. To us and the hope 
in what is to come. I mean, talk about a work of encouragement in our lives. Let me tell you something. I love it when people come to my office and say to me, Pastor, I just feel like the Lord is dealing with me on something. Yes, that is salvation at work in you. Pastor, I feel like, I feel like the Lord is dealing with me on some things. Yes, that is salvation at work in you. Pastor, I feel like the Lord is convicting me of a lot. That's my favorite phrase. Yes, that is salvation at work in you. God is still working on us. God is still working in us. God is still working through us. So Christian, today I want to encourage you and say, listen, your, your life has meaning because salvation is yours. It is yours. can never be taken from you. Salvation is yours. And at the same time, it is salvation that is still working in you. Paul continues in the text. And he says this phrase, he says, if you hold fast. Now notice here that Paul teaches that the gospel not only saves us and allows us to stand, but it also calls us to now persevere. Here is Paul's call to the church to, go, to continue to press onward and to cling to the gospel in order to persevere no matter what trouble may come their way. This is why we, we pray together on Sunday nights. If you've noticed, we pray that God would continue to send us people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether they're believers or, or whether they're not, because here's the reality. Even as Christians, we struggle. Even as Christians, we falter. Even as Christians, we, we fail. And so we need the gospel preached to ourselves. We need the gospel shared with other believers because it's the gospel, not some sort of man-made nonsense that will allow us to continue to press on with what may hap be happening in our lives. Okay, let me unpack that for a minute, okay? Some sort of combination of numbers is not going to cure you. It doesn't justify who you are. It doesn't sanctify you and encourage you to grow. Here's what I mean. We can't walk up to someone and say, uh, I'm going to pick on somebody. Let me see. Jonathan, because he's been helping me this morning. I can't walk up to Jonathan and, and walk away from Jonathan and walk over to a conversation with the elders and go, well, it's because Jonathan's a 436 on the chart that he acts this way. That solves nothing. That doesn't help Jonathan persevere. It doesn't help me persevere with Jonathan. No, what helps us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet what we do as Western Christians is we continue to try to add to the things that we think are going to help us. When the reality is this, the only thing that's ever going to help us is right in front of us. It's the gospel. So yes, we need to be preaching the gospel. This is why Paul literally says this gospel above all, it is good for you. It is good for you. It causes you to stand. It causes you to cling, to, to, to persevere. But then he also says this, it's also good for you unless you believed in vain. Meaning this, the gospel can and will redirect your heart and mind unless you never truly believed in the gospel in the first place. Because here's what happens. You can say you believe it, but if you don't truly believe in the gospel, then when the testing comes, you will fall away. Look at the gospel of Luke, chapter 8, parable of the soil. 
One particular part of that story about those who don't persevere, they're like the seed that falls on hard ground and thus is dried up. Like we said last week as we were wrapping up Malachi, when we, when we realize that we are now called to live in light of God's favor, which is salvation, we realize that, that we now live in that favor versus living in spite of our own circumstances. Thus why too many Christians are, are flapping in the wind like a flag. When the reality is we need to be reminded of the fact that we live in the favor of God now. Our good, our bad, our, our joys, our hopes, our trials, all a part of the favor of God. Our hope rests in the favor of God. Our hope does not rest in our circumstances. Because let me tell you something, your circumstances will change. I'm going to take a step further. Your circumstances will fail you. But the gospel will never fail. You see, when we believe the gospel above all, we begin to see that not only have we received the gospel, we can also now stand in the gospel. We rest in the fact that we are saved by the gospel, which allows us to persevere in the gospel. Thus, we will never fall away because of the gospel. So let me ask you this morning, what are you standing on today? Are you standing on your own circumstances? Are you standing upon your own hope? Are you standing upon your own merit? Or are you standing upon the hope that is the gospel? Now notice what happens next in our text because Paul gives these thoughts to the church at Corinth, but, but he can't just give these thoughts without now answering the question himself, which is this, what is the gospel? And not only does he answer the question, but then he, he proves the, the truth of the gospel. Look with me again in verse 3. He says, For I deliver to you as a first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, now let's just pause there before we get into the, the witnesses that's about to take place. Again, notice how Paul says in this moment that the gospel is of first importance, meaning that the gospel should be the baseline, or better yet, the foundation of all that is taught. Everything in the Bible from the Old Testament, even to the New Testament, points us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So notice from, from this point, Paul now turns his attention to the gospel, or better yet, who the gospel is. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Notice here that Paul confesses to the church that the foundation of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died to secure the forgiveness of sin for all believers. In other words, Paul tells the church that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners. He died in your place. He died in, in my place. He took on our sins and the sins of the church at Corinth. He took them upon himself and he paid the price that ultimately we ourselves deserve. This is why Paul can later write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul literally says to the church at Corinth, Jesus did what it was that we could not do ourselves. Jesus paid the debt 
that we could never settle ourselves. Jesus died the death that we deserved to die. He took on what was ours and he gave us what we were not owed. You see, that is the power of the gospel. That is the power of the hope that we now have in the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we read in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53, the death of Christ was planned by God from the beginning. Again, like we said at Good Friday, who had all authority in this moment? It was God. You see, the death of Jesus Christ for our sins wasn't just God's plan A, as if there was a plan B. Normally when someone says, hey, plan A is this, I'm thinking, well, what's plan B? Because chances are plan A is not going to work out. This was God's only plan. Why? Because there was no other need for a plan. And then here's the beauty of it. Our story does not end with the death of Christ. And so notice how Paul continues to to build his defense of the truth of the gospel. He says in the text that he being Christ was buried. Notice that Paul tells the people something they already know, except the doubters wanted to continue to refute and, and refuse that Jesus Christ ever died. Paul tells us, that he not only died, but he, he died and he was subsequently buried. I mean, that's kind of the natural order of things, right? Someone dies, what do we do? Right? We bury him. So Christ's death was not some sort of elaborate hoax that some would believe. Paul tells us, no, he was dead. He was really dead. But the reality is that's not the end of the story. Paul continues on and he teaches that not only was he buried, but then he says this of Jesus, so that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now again, I want you to notice Paul's use of the phrase in accordance with the scriptures. He's literally telling us this. What Jesus said he would do, according to Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew 17 and Matthew 20, just to name one gospel. What was foretold about him from the Old Testament, particularly in Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and then pick pick a prophecy from Isaiah from chapter 40 all the way to the end. All of those things had now come to pass. In other words, death was defeated. And now the power that is in Christ And those who are the people of Christ, they can now enjoy the freedom that comes from the forgiveness of our sins. Again, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't miss the wonder and the beauty of what Paul is teaching the church. Literally, he's saying that in the death and the resurrection of Christ, it was Jesus who ordained this moment. He spoke about it, and it came to pass. The prophets of the Old Testament spoke about this moment, and it came to pass. Jesus literally said, hey, not only did they speak about it, but I told you it was going to happen, and guess what? It happened. Man, to God be the glory for the promise fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. And as if the burial and the resurrection, again, wasn't enough proof 
for the church at Corinth during this time and, and enough proof of the power of the gospel above all and that the truth of Jesus Christ, uh, Paul takes this thing one step further and now reveals a list of witnesses who then saw Jesus Christ after the resurrection. Look with me, verses five through eight. He says this, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, I can't stress enough the importance of witnesses and having witnesses during the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you've you've read the Old Testament, you know it was important for a witness to be able to prove or disprove any case that may come before the leaders or the governing authorities during that particular day. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 25 teaches us that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the text only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, at the same time, before we move on from this law in Deuteronomy, we now see that this law teaches us that we have a way to establish truth. And again, we don't establish the truth because someone said it, and therefore I'm repeating what someone else said, but but you actually saw it happen. So when we talk about a witness, this is a person who was there. They saw it. They experienced it. I didn't just hear it from a neighbor. I was there. I witnessed this whole thing happen. And notice the law tells us that one doesn't suffice. You got to have at least two, maybe three if you're good. Now, this was important in Paul's day because there were those in Corinth who were denying the power of the resurrection. They were denying the fact that Jesus ever rose from the dead. So Paul wanted to affirm in the minds of the believers that there was no doubt about the power of the resurrection and what Jesus Christ had done. Notice what he says in verse 5. Again, he says, he appeared to Cephas. Now again, just for clarity, this is Peter. Okay, just different name, same guy. Peter, let's keep moving on. Now, as we move through this text, if you highlight or underline in your Bible, the phrase I would underline or highlight here is the word then, or maybe the phrase last of all, which is what he says when you get to verse 8. Notice what it happens. He says this, then to the 12. Now, this is a general reference to the apostles themselves. Notice he continues, then to more than 500 brothers and sisters, by the way, at one time. Do you get what Paul is saying at this point? He's saying, yeah, Jesus appeared before 500 people. All these people saw him, and they all saw him at one time. Now, you may be wondering, well, what's so significant about this particular group? Well, here's the reality. There were many who, when they heard that Peter had seen Jesus and the apostles had seen Jesus, they were writing it off as if it was some sort of hallucination. Well, here's the question that we have before us. How does 500 people hallucinate at the same time? It's not possible. Some some were trying to, to continue to put this on Peter and put this on 12, but there is just no way that you can convince 500 people to tell the same story. I'll prove it 
Do you ever play telephone with your children at home? Do you ever play telephone with our kids here at church or, or our students? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I live with six people in my house, me and five others. We have yet to, or maybe, maybe you don't play telephone. Maybe you play that game. What's that game we play? Telestrations, where it gives you a word, you got to draw the picture, and then you hand the picture to the next person, and they got to figure out what the word is. How often do you get around the circle where everything is correct? Rarely. And we're, I'm, I'm just playing with six people. And it's not even like, I mean, we literally have a moment in my house where we sit there and say, okay, we're not going to mess this up. We're going to prove to the world that this can be done, that, that six people can come up with the same story. And guess what happens every time? The story changes. Nobody gets it right. So when you compare just our own homes and playing a simple game, compare that to what's happened when, when Jesus reveals himself to 500 people, the problem is this. All 500 people saw Jesus Christ after the resurrection. Now notice what Paul says next. He goes one step further. He says, most of whom of the 500 are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Literally, he says that there are some who have already died. But most of them are still alive. So you could go ask them for yourselves. In other words, he kind of pulls that, that reading rainbow line. You don't have to take my word for it. You could go ask them. They're still living. He goes in from the text from there in verse 7. He says this, and then he appeared to James. Now let's just pause here. I want to pause on James for a moment because this is a powerful story. This is, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Most scholars have concluded from Mark chapter 3 and John chapter 7 that James was probably not a believer during Jesus' ministry. And yet here is Jesus after the resurrection appearing to James to which we then know that James comes to faith and was then counted among the apostles. You go back and you read about that in Galatians chapter 1. Later, this same James would be the writer of the book of James. He would also be considered a great leader in the church, according to Acts chapter 15, and again in Acts chapter 21. So according to historical accounts, here's what we also know about James. It would be James who would be stoned to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet here he is in Paul's passage in his letter in 1 Corinthians 15, he is now listed individually among two of the most prominent leaders in the church. Peter, James, Paul. I mean, talk about keeping good company. To be considered in that group, clearly you're doing something right. So what we see in this mention of Peter and Paul and James, we see the, the significance of the importance of the work that James had done. Now, I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters of Christ, this story of James simply amazes me because here we are reminded of the power of the gospel. You see, here's the reality. When the gospel is above all, then there is not a single person according to God's will and according to God's authority who cannot be pierced and changed by the word of God. Let me unpack what I'm talking about here. You got a hard person in your life. You got a hard family member in your life. You got a person in your life that you sit there and look at and you say, there is no way this person's ever coming to Jesus. 
Or maybe you're saying the opposite. Let me be honest. Maybe you got that person in your life that you're saying, I hope there's no way that person ever comes to Jesus. (laughs) The reality is this. Even for that person, we should never give up on them. Because if Jesus Christ, after the resurrection, if he didn't give up on his brother, then neither should we. Don't give up on the hard cases. Because even the hard cases need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. The text continues. It says, and then to all the apostles. Now, again, this could have been a moment with the 12 again, probably around the time of the story of Thomas, uh, when he was able to touch Jesus' hands or side, or it could have been another time that's not recorded. Either way, here's what we learn from this entire passage. Paul literally says, you need two or three witnesses to prove that something is true. How about God just raised the standard and he gave you 500 plus? You wanted two or three. Does 500 work? Talk about the ultimate play by the Lord. I mean, he literally raises the stakes so high that there is now no room to doubt. So notice Paul, in writing, has now provided through the burial and the witnesses all of the evidence needed to prove the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. But notice he's not done. He gets to verse 8 and he says, and last of all, he appeared also to me. Notice here that Paul teaches us that Jesus appeared to him as well. Now, pay attention to this story because here's the reality. Paul did not see Jesus until after the ascension. Okay, this is, this is Acts chapter 9, what we're talking about right now. So this was not some sort of some, some sort of norm, okay? This normally did not happen because most people thought that seeing Jesus directly ended at the ascension. And I think scholars today want to argue the meaning of this moment, but I think for our purposes today, I don't think that what, uh, this is what Paul wanted. I don't think Paul wanted the debate over when he saw Jesus or whether or not he actually saw Jesus or not. I think Paul wanted the people to see that even the gospel itself could grab him. Notice that Paul points us to the fact that he is as one who is untimely born. Paul literally uses a phrase that's often used to describe miscarriages. It's a phrase used to describe defects at childbirth. Paul says, man, I was was dead. I I didn't deserve this shot. I was so defected in my heart. I didn't deserve this shot. And Paul says, this is why I preach the gospel above all, because there is no reason, because there is no explanation, because there is no indication that I should have ever been chosen by God to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul then goes on to explain more about what he means when he speaks of how he didn't deserve Jesus Christ, and yet it was grace that called him, and it's grace that now leads him to press on. Look with me in verses 9 and 10. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy 
to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul recognized that he did not deserve to be counted as righteous before the Lord. Paul says, I should have never been called to faith in Christ. And at this point, many people would ask, well, why? Well, we know why. And Paul tells us why. He tells the church, because I persecuted the church of God. Do you get what Paul is admitting to here? He's literally saying, I am a terrorist. I have overseen the mass imprisonments and executions of people who have come to faith. In fact, I've participated in them. You see, Paul started as a person who was a passionate opponent against the church. He was a passionate opponent against Jesus Christ. Paul was the one who led the charge to persecute the church. Thus, Paul teaches the church why the gospel is now so important to him. Because he recognizes the favor and the grace that has been shown to him. This is why he's able to write to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says this. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. Your translation may say, of whom I am the worst. Paul recognizes that he could not boast about anything except the grace of God that is found in the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, for Paul, everything that he is, everything that he has done can only be seen as God's grace at work in his life. There was no other explanation for Paul. And I want to tell you that this reality is true for us today. I mean, it's brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're a believer in this room, do you understand that there is no other explanation for our faith than the grace of God? There's no other reason for it. There's no other, there's no other explanation, no other reason other than the grace of God at work in our lives through the gospel. But notice we come back to the text and we see that it's the grace of God that now compels Paul to work harder than any of them. Now again, Paul's not talking about a, a, a faith and a works thing here where he's talking about how you gotta, you gotta work to get faith. No, he's saying because of faith, I am now working. Paul would not let his faith wither in vain. Rather, what Paul does is because of God's grace, because of the gospel, Paul was now moved to action. This action was not from a place of self-accomplishment either. Paul's actions were not based on, on his own hope of making a name for himself. Rather, it was the, the grace of God that now gave him the strength and the energy to further proclaim the gospel above all. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, when we look at Paul's own life, 
We have to ask ourselves as Christians today, are we seeking to make much of ourselves in this place? Are we here because we hope to make a name for ourselves or are we compelled by God's grace to work and to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known? You see, we are now called to make the gospel known, not in vain or because we have to earn something, but rather because of God's grace, it should be our desire to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. So let me ask you today, on this Resurrection Sunday, on this Easter Sunday, do you desire to make much of Jesus? Do you desire to make much of the gospel and to make the gospel known above all? As we come to a close in our passage, Paul closes with a common confession for the believer. He says in verse 11, whether then it was, it was I or they, So we preached, and so you believed. In other words, the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that Paul believed is the same gospel that shapes the hearts of the Corinthians. It's the same gospel that shapes our hearts today. The gospel preached is a reminder that we have forgiveness for sins, that our sins have been atoned for, and that there is power at the cross and there is power in the resurrection and it's in that that we now place our hope it's the same gospel the same good news of jesus christ that was seen by hundreds told by thousands and then shared for generations and as paul teaches us it's a gospel worth living for And as his life would show us, it's a gospel worth dying for. So I want to ask you this morning, what is the gospel worth to you? What is it worth? I'm going to help you answer that by saying this. The answer is going to be found in how we now live. It's going to be found in how we now share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's going to be found in where the gospel and the word of God itself is placed in our lives. Is it of first importance? Or is the gospel, is worship, is service, is prayer, is reading and studying the word, is that all afterthoughts behind everything else? What is the gospel worth? I'm going to go ahead and tell you my prayer is that our answer is this. The gospel is worth everything. The gospel is worth my life. The gospel is worth my all. It is worth my 100% and then some. So my hope on this Easter Sunday is that we don't just say that he is risen, but rather we live, we work, we speak as though we believe that he is risen. My hope is that we would teach, preach, live, and share the gospel above all else. To God be the glory for what he has done. To God be the glory for the power that is found in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. To God be the glory for the good news of the gospel. Now let's pray together. May the glory God.